Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Folks, there is a lot going on in college football. We're at the point in the season where the games are getting even more important with conference titles and playoff spots on the line. And it seems like we can't get through a day without a coaching move of some sort or another. Wild times indeed. Just this morning, a few hours before we started recording this podcast, Virginia Tech fired Justin Fuente. It's a whirlwind right now. Joining us to take it all in is a first-time guest. Ari Wasserman from The Athletic covers college football nationally with recruiting as his perspective. If you are familiar with Ari's work, you'll know him as the Stars Matter guy. We'll talk about the news of the day coming out of Virginia Tech. We'll glance back at the weekend that was and talk about Texas's latest rock bottom and also what to make of James Franklin as a hot coaching candidate. Then as usual, we'll preview the weekend with a countdown of our five most intriguing games. There is a big one in the Big Ten that will no doubt make our list. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us at appodcast.com, where you can also find my colleague Rob Motti's fine NFL podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, just about anywhere you like to get your pods. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to give us a good review and rating. It helps more college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. If you'd like to email the show, send questions and or comments to aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. That's aptop25mailbag, the numbers 25 at gmail.com. And away we go. Joining me this week on the podcast is a first-time guest, Ari Wasserman from The Athletic. Ari, thank you so much for uh, jumping on the show today. Oh, I've been looking forward to having you on. But as I as I explained to you in my text message asking you if you wanted to come on, a lot of my friends, including Ari, work for The Athletic. So I don't want this to be like a, a de facto athletic podcast. So I need to sort of switch it up, make sure I not don't have Nicole on too often or Andy or Stu. Uh, but I have been dying to get you on uh, because you do a great job with your writing, covering recruiting and college football nationally and also on the Andy Staple show. So thank you so much, Ari. Yeah. And uh, I can talk to my producer at The Athletic and see if he can throw your podcast on our network, too. You know, depending I don't on know many- if that's allowed, Ari. I think, <laughs> be, I think there might be. I think our people might have to call your people like. They- <laughs> yeah, it's above my pay grade. But again, I appreciate you having me on and I look forward to it. I, I think it's great getting your commentary on The Andy Show every Sunday via text. So yeah. uh, it's, it's always good to to hear your thoughts. And I'm excited to kind of chop it up with you right now. 
Yeah, yeah. The, 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 just a slight backstory there. So I l- like listening to uh, Ari and Andy's, especially the Sunday show. I'll listen to your Friday too, but especially the Sunday show. It's one of three or four that I listen to while I'm doing the poll and all my Sunday work to make sure I'm sort of up to speed. Because as you know, a lot goes on on a Saturday. And sometimes like you'll, you'll listen to somebody else and go, oh, shoot, I missed that. Or right. I, 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 like, I didn't think that was that big a deal. But when I do that, because all these people are my friends who I'm listening to, I also tend to text them as if they are live on the air. <laughs> it's like me, like, like it's me going back to my WFAN days here in New York and just thinking like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a talk radio caller and I'm chiming in uh, like in real time when these guys like Ari's probably asleep, you know, <laughs> like, and I'm texting him about something he recorded the night before. So it's it's a weird thing I like to do. You know, I like your I like your insight. You're all over the place. You you cover the sport as well as anybody and, and <laughs> hearing your opinion of of what we're saying. And listen, I say things all the time that are wrong or stupid. So, you know, being told that is, is fine. That's kind of what this is all about, right, Ralph? We're not supposed to know uh, beyond the shadow of a doubt that every single one of our opinions that we say is going to be 100% correct. We just do our best to contextualize the sport and, you know, provide a uh, you know, insight into things that, you know, people want to hear about. So, you know, this is a really busy week in, in college football. We're kind of winding it, winding it down, but also ramping it up at the same time. (laughs) So, you know, this is a good week to be on. Yeah, it's crazy. There's so much stuff going on. So let's just start with the news of the day. We're recording on a Tuesday afternoon at, at 745, I believe Eastern time when I woke up, I actually slept in an extra half an hour today. And that allowed me to miss the announcement that Justin Fuente was fired from Virginia Tech. And like a lot of these firings, the fact that he was fired was no surprise. No coach came into the season with a hotter seat and more of a definitive like, hey, if they don't have a good year this year, they're going to make a change. I think everybody knew that was coming. We just didn't expect it at 7.45 in the morning on a Tuesday. Um, but that has been done. The deed has been done now. So let's talk about where, you know, like what went wrong there. And this is one of the reasons why I like to have you on for this particular conversation, because Mr. Stars Matter, like the what seemed to have gone wrong at Virginia Tech is they stopped recruiting. That's it. That's correct. Uh, their 2020 class, and I know this, it's burnt into my brain, was uh, ranked number 76 nationally. And I got to say, without being offensive, or maybe it is, it was one of the worst recruiting classes I've ever seen in terms of expectations. And that's not disparaging any individual uh, prospect that signed with Virginia Tech in that year, but collectively what they did and what they're supposed to do was so night and day that you just kind of knew that this day was coming. Now, I know that athletic directors and fans like to look at at things like, well, if they don't have a good season this year, this is going to be it for them. Or if he doesn't win enough games this year, this is it. It's like if I put myself in the position of an athletic director, I understand exactly what's important when it comes to running the program. And so many people lose track of the site or lose track of the vision that recruiting is probably 75 or 80% of the job. If you don't have the players on your team, then how are you going to get the results that you want or what is deemed expected? So if the coach is vastly underperforming in the talent accumulation phase of his job, to me, that is a underlying issue that is going to come to the surface in the form of not being competitive on the field. So obviously the 
the expected recruiting results of every program is different and is usually in line with what is expected on the field um, of that school. So signing a top 25 class at Alabama would be a problem, but signing it at Virginia Tech would be a great success. I understand there's nuance to that, but be signing uh, the number 76 class in the country, yeah. you're in a very talent rich area of the country is a major problem. And, you know, to me, if you go look around at a lot of the uh, coaching carousel issues that you're going to be, you know, examining here in the next few months, I bet you, you could go back in time and look and say, Hey, you know what? That person wasn't recruiting well enough to, to be in that job. I mean, there's a correlation between terrible class three years ago to fire now because you know, it's infallible. Now, the only one that I will say didn't work that way was Ed Orgeron because he had, was recruiting quite well. But of course, the standard at LSU was to win a national championship every other year, and that didn't happen. And he also won one two years ago. So, you know, to me, this is the foundation of the sport and you have to pay attention to it. And if I were an athletic director, I would make coaching decisions and uh, whether that mean hiring and firing based on what I believe um, they're doing on the recruiting front. So I think the, the coaching carousel is spinning too fast, not just this year. I, it's easier to say that this year because we've already had 12, I think, FBS. I think Fuente was maybe the 12th FBS job to open up. Uh, Virginia Tech was the 12th FBS job to open up. And we're not even at the end of the season. We still have two more weeks left, and these will be a busy couple of weeks. Um, but, I, but when I say the coaching carousel is spinning too fast, what I mean is we're running in and out of these coaches so quickly that they're the pool of decent candidates and what you would think of as a good candidate to take over a, a, a job with high level expectations is just very thin. And that's yeah. why you end up with Scott Frost after two years at Central Florida being deemed the next great coach and he's going to go to Nebraska. Who the hell knows? That's why you have Tom Herman going, being deemed the next great coach after two years at Houston. And now he's landed a big job. So I only say that to say, like, on one hand, I, I kind of admire the fact that Virginia Tech gave Fuente an extra year and had him get through to see, hey, maybe it gets a little better next year because, you know, we're rushing through this very quickly and we're going to be a little more fiscally responsible and try to save a little money on these buyouts. So I get that. But I also find myself, the, the, the other part of my brain finds myself thinking like, this seemed over last year at Virginia Tech. Like the yeah. fact that they didn't fire him last year, we've just, we, I feel like they just almost in some ways wasted a year waiting to fire him. So, you know, I, I'm, well, this, this I'm conversation here, is going to go. Yeah. Really, I'm contradicting really myself here. No, but. You're not, you're not, you're not because it is a catch 22. And if we have other topics to get to on this podcast, we might not get to them because this is a conversation <laughs> that we can have for hours, but here's the thing that I find interesting. Who so every single coach or, or administrator at a program wants their coach to, to transform their program into something better or bigger than it is the day that they get hired, and that takes time. And as a recruiting stars matter dude, like I understand that you know you're not just going to go in and go sign a, a class that's 35 spots higher than the class before because it doesn't work that way, everything is, is built upon minor successes and you build and you build and you build. And then one day you finally get to the promised land. Like if you go look at the last program that went from good to elite, would you, who, what would that program be? Clemson? Yeah. I mean, there it been, doesn't happen. It does not happen, but it doesn't Clemson happen. The example. And then 
Clemson is the example because Dabo had how many years of leading that program before it broke through? I mean, I think you could say he was there for five or six years, and I think he had one 10-win season. Yeah. Four or five years off the top of my head, and he had one season of 10 wins, but they they were patient with him, and they viewed um, you know, his vision as something that would be successful long-term if they continue to invest in him. And that's an admirable, feel-good warmth of a story that we can sit here now in 2021 and say, look how great that turned out. So that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin, too, is that you want to make these changes so quickly because you don't, like you just say, just said, you don't want to miss out on a year. But sometimes I wonder if coaches get chopped off at, at the knees too quickly because they didn't have enough time for their vision to come to light. So the only way that you can build a program is, is by having the same continuity of a coach and his staff at your school for a long period of time, if you really want to build something the right way. But on the other hand, there's so such a lack of patience from administrators to keep them there that I think people get fired too quickly. Now, that doesn't mean that I think that Fuente should still have his job or Scott Frost or Tom Herman. Like, what do we really know about coaching hires? I mean, Scott Frost and Herman were your two examples, and those were probably two of the most slam dunk hires of the past 10 years, and they didn't work out or Frost has one more year to prove it. But on the other hand, if you don't have the patience and the understanding of what it takes to build your program around, around, you could turn into Tennessee where you're firing your coach every two or three years and starting over again and just running in quicksand. So there is a balancing act there. I don't know what the right answer is. I don't know if it means stick with Frost for four more years and give him an abundance of time to make other, you know, make make sure, or if you're a program that's headed in the wrong direction, you don't want to let it slide too much. But this is why administrators get paid so much money because it's their job to kind of analyze their place, to understand who's in charge, and to figure out exactly what is best for their program. And unfortunately, Ralph, I think it's become too simplistic of, well, if we don't have the results in three years or two years that we want, we're just going to fire him and start over. But every time you fire a coach and start over, what happens? You start over and yeah. you look like crap. So like, it's just like this weird catch 22 when an administrator has to be smart enough to use his money and his mind the right way in order to build a program. Because one of the things I think that's happening now in college football, Ari, is uh, people are using the firing itself, just a simple, we're going to fire somebody and we're going to bring in somebody new as a way to goose the program. Right. Like just the simple act of, hey, you hated that guy. Cool. We hate him, too. So we're going to fire him and that's going to make you excited. Buy season tickets. Yeah. Yeah. And then we're going to hire somebody new and we'll talk him up and we'll make him sound great. And you will have hope and that will boost the program a little bit and we'll get like a little a bump. And maybe that guy, maybe that new guy will be better than the old guy just because he's new and different. And like, he's got a little different energy, a little different vision. And that provides a little, a little boost. And then if, if that boost runs out in two or three or four or five years, Oh, no, next, we're just going to do that over again. We're just going to hit that button over again, but you're right. The attrition that comes with the two quick movements. I mean, Florida state is the perfect example of this. I'm not saying that Willie Taggart deserved, like had, had, you know, uh, wrapped himself in glory over the 18 or 19 games that he had been the head coach, but there was, you're, you're not, there's no chance you're going to fix the things in 18 or 19 games. And then when you fire him, you are guaranteed to be worse, almost guaranteed to be worse just for hitting the reset button again. And you also have to be, uh, understanding of the, the climate that you're in, if you're an athletic director or a president of that university, 
I mean, Florida State is situated in one of the most competitive recruiting battlegrounds in the entire country, especially now considering that that Alabama goes in there and takes half of the top 15 players out of that state every year. And it's just like, if you keep firing people, how is Florida State ever going to get its foothold recruiting the toughest state in America to recruit? So, you know, I think you can make all these examples of it. And then, you know, at the same time, too, I wonder about a place like Michigan that, you know, has seen. You I'm, know, I'm, I'm laughing only because I had a feeling we were going to get back to Michigan. No, we don't have to. We can use another, <laughs> another example, too. No, no, like, no. Please stay on Michigan. You, you, you do see that, like, the coaching situation there has been pretty volatile at the same time that it's been sturdy. And I don't quite understand what they're doing in terms of program expectations. When, when Jim Harbaugh was hired, they were supposed to beat Ohio state and contend for the big 10 title. And now 10 and two with a loss to Ohio state by 20 points at the end of the year is sufficient. And it's just like, what do you do if you're the, the athletic director at Michigan? Like it's just these, each individual program has its own set of challenges. And I think that if you're trying to you know, do exactly what you said of fire the coach, keep them around just until the fan base, just right before they become apathetic, then do it again and rinse and repeat. That's a problem. But I also feel like too, if you have a coach that's just above average who stays a little too long, he can make the program stale. So it's, it's really is a balancing act. There's no right or wrong answer. And the hardest thing about it too, Ralph, is that of all these coaching hires that happen, nobody knows whether these people are going to be successful or not regardless of what their resume says. Well, they have I mean, the job. Like, like it's, and it's just like Scott Frost was a once in a million hire. Jim Harbaugh was a once in a million hire. And he was on the hot seat, you know, 10 months ago. We're, we're talking about Tom Herman. The guy has Texas roots. He goes to Houston, kicks butt there for two years, and then gets hired as this hotshot offensive mind with a Texas background to bring the Longhorns back. It's like you couldn't have formulated a better hire. Than when and it didn't work out. So, like to me, this idea of well, but 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 did it work? But didn't it? it, You say it didn't work out, but they were he's gone. Well, let's transition. They were seven and three last year, and now it's a dumpster fire at Texas. So I don't even know what not working out is anymore, and how we define what it not working out. He had three, four. What uh, Herman got fired after four? It was his fourth year. Yeah, yeah. I mean. You know, I, I, listen, I understand that they had not met expectations, but again, like, what is the concept of not working out when then Sark steps in there at Texas, tells everybody this is not a rebuild, all gas, no brakes. I mean, he had uh, he was on my show and he didn't say like, oh, we're going to win. We're going to win the Big 12 this year. We're going to win the national championship this year. But he made it pretty clear that, like, I am going to Texas because we have dudes here. We have things here. We're not starting from scratch. Oh, boy. It turns out. No, you are. You suck. And you're yeah. not you personally, Sark, but your team <laughs> and you are starting from scratch. So what the hell happened there? Yeah, I don't know. Like, well, to me, like the definition of not working out is failing to meet expectations that were put in place when you were hired. And Tom Herman failed to do that. But is everybody are everybody's expectations just just at this point, you know, just broken? I mean, you know, there was an interesting uh, a conversation on Twitter today that I'll bring in. 
my former AP colleague, Joel Anderson, is at Slate. He was a former a TCU running back. He's a, I think he walked on. He played behind LaDainian Tomlinson way back when. Anyway, he's also a, was a pretty good sports writer, now works at Slate and does more, more highbrow things and, and a smart guy. Uh, Bomani Jones got involved in this conversation, too. And the, the, the crux of it is this. Every, all these college football fan bases seem miserable right now. And part of it seems to be that nobody has realistic expectations anymore. Everybody thinks we can be great when the reality is you probably can't. You can probably be good. You can probably have moments of greatness. So I just think expectations have just run roughshod over the sport and no, nobody's satisfied with their coach ever. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that you say that uh, as Ed Orgeron is moving on after winning a national title two years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a perfect example. But at the same time, I could push back on that a little bit and say, you don't think Nebraska fans have recalibrated their expectations? Uh, no, I do. And I think the, I think it's clearly that's the case if you keep Scott Frost. In fact, their their expectations, I would almost suggest, have gotten too low. But that's also a dynamic of them just liking Frost because he's one of them. So yeah, like, but you, you they're, put they're yourself in a position. More, they're cutting Frost more slack than they would another coach. But all Nebraska used to be was one of the most power, the most iconic visions of what a powerhouse dynasty should look like, right? It was college Those fans. Yeah. yeah, and now those fans, all they want to do is be competitive in the Big Ten West and maybe go to Indianapolis once every three years. Right, and even that seems to be a, a galaxy away. So, like, I do think there has been some recalibration of of expectations. But think about the the programs we're talking about here, Ralph. We're talking about Texas, we're talking about Michigan, we're talking about LSU, and we're talking about Nebraska. We're talking about teams that have all won national championships since the mid nineties. And I understand too, that like things have changed in the last 25 years, especially with the way that recruiting works. Now I understand that as well as anybody, but at the same time, it's not like we're saying, well, the university of Arizona where I went fired their coach because he only won seven games. I think Arizona fans have a pretty good, clear uh, understanding of what their expectations are, but but he actually did. That was Todd Graham, right? That was like, that was Todd Graham was exactly what you're talking about. They fired Tom Graham because he had won seven, eight at the one year where he won 10. And they basically bring in Herm Edwards and, and, you know, let's, let's put the NCAA stuff aside. I think there's another coaching change coming there. Herm has done Nothing that Tom Grab did not do. It, it, oh, yeah. It was, it was simply a reboot because the AD wanted a reboot and the program. I, I guess my overall point. Well, you're missing. You're mixing up the Arizona schools. Oh, it's, I, I'm sorry. Yeah. You went to Arizona. You yeah. Went, yeah. But like, I, I get what you're saying, though. You're, what you're saying is correct. Yes. But 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 I would. Well, I mean, I would also su- suggest that Arizona has gone kind of gone through a little bit of that, too, though. The expectations yeah. that Arizona should be better than we are the worst power pride program in the country. I agree I with will you. say that yes. like, like where they are now is totally unacceptable. It's yeah. And it's like I also think there's something good about striving for the most for Nirvana, right? Like striving for excellence and, and reaching expectations, even if they're unrealistic. But I also think, too, that the hardest job that nobody ever talks about is being an athletic director, because those are the people who have to not only identify the expectations, but understand whether or not they're reasonable. Yeah. And like, especially now with geographical implications of, of where certain programs are, it's like Nebraska was, was the dynasty of, of forever in the nineties. But now that they're in the middle of nowhere and recruiting has shifted and they're not in the big 12 anymore, they're still signing top 25 classes as a result of being Nebraska, but it's just not in the cards for them to ever be that again.
Okay, so let, let me put Nebraska aside because I think that's a unique situation there, and they have had a bunch of uh, poor hires, and the landscape has shifted around them. But uh, I, I, the other thing I, I kind of find myself getting back to with this whole conversation, Ari, is are you allowed to have one bad season anymore? Like we're running Dan Mullen out of town, or it seems like he's getting run out of town or very close to it. And there's been now there's, and I wanted to talk to you about James Franklin uh, because mm-hmm. now all of a sudden, like, oh, well, what's exactly going on with James Franklin at Penn State? It's like, wait a second, like Dan Mullen basically has had a bad year. And I'm not, again, I'm not trying to necessarily defend and like be the guy saying, no, you can't fire Dan Mullen. Do whatever you want. I mean, like, it, ultimately, that's fine. But like, I think we have also like, we've lost our minds a little bit in that if you have a bad year, time to go like like one one off year is too much it's time to go and i understand mullen's got also the, these recruiting issues too so maybe there's that as well but i just i don't know he man. also too has I think we're never running, i think we're running a, a, on a treadmill that's going nowhere yeah yeah that. and i think that it's a financial treadmill that's going nowhere but at the same time too it's like if you break down each individual coach that we're talking about here it's like dan mullen is this one bad year or is this the worst year of a bunch of years that didn't meet the expectations of what Florida expects from their program? Right. Cause you know? the, cause the expectation is national championships. So the fact that you win three uh, new year, six bowls or go to three new year, six bowls, that becomes like, Oh, that's not really good enough. Well, it's, it's not good enough. If you ask a Florida fan, they don't want to be permanently in second place to Bama and or third place to Bama and Georgia. And why should they be? And if Dan Mullen has illustrated Um, an inability to recruit at the level that is necessary to compete with those teams. Um, And I actually think that Dan Mullen's done a great job of preparing his teams on the field to compete hard with those teams, but to, to equip the program with the necessary athletes it takes to legitimately be favored or to win those games consistently, then he's not doing the job that he was hired for. You don't get fired for losing. You get fired for failing to meet expectations. And I get your point of expectations are too, are too high there, but it's just like Florida has won three national championships in the last 20 years. Right? So like what, why aren't those the expectations? Is it just Nick Saban is king and everybody else has to, you know, kneel down at the knees and just say thank you for for not beating us too bad this year? Or do you have to find somebody that actually has the chops to build a program that can make Nick Saban sweat a little bit? And it's just like, but who is that? Let's let's let's, let's try. But that's also part. Well, but to try means to spin the wheel and place a big bet just on trying. Because that's the other thing, too. I mean, there is a financial and it's not my money. So, hey, man, do what you want with it. But there is also something a little crazy about the fact that and I, I go to Auburn, right? Auburn paid like 20 odd million to get rid of Gus and bring in Brian Harson, And that's their big move. Like right? that's their trying. You got to try. Right. So that's what Auburn is doing. They're trying and they're spending 20 odd million dollars to try with Brian Harson, who, frankly, if Brian Harson had the same tenure as Gu- do you think Brian Harson will be will be substantially better than Gus Malzahn? I think Auburn is the perfect example of what you're saying because Auburn inexplicably has beaten Bama multiple times. And yeah, when they, they are really be able to beat Bama, like that should be a rivalry that's not so No, I know, but you don't fire the guy that actually could do it when nobody else can. Like to me, I think that Auburn was was basically at its ceiling when they fired Gus Malzahn, which is 
every three years you have a good enough team to maybe win the SEC or to beat Alabama and do something special. And, and, and Auburn has always been a boomer bust program. And if you have a coach and if you want to talk about Penn state too, like I think being able to play well in the rivalry game against the juggernaut, it's like the most important bullet point a coach could even ever have on their resume. And it's like Gus Malzahn, doing what he did against Alabama during his Auburn tenures as impressive of a coaching accomplishment as anybody else. And the way that James, James Franklin continually pushes Ohio state to the brink of their, they existence. don't win. He has, has they, only won once though. They only probably, yeah, they don't win. They lost by, by one twice uh, after blowing brutal. multiple yeah. brutal to those back to back years. One, once at state college and once at Columbus. What do you think Jim Harbaugh would do for that, brutal. for that resume? What's that? I said, what do you think Jim Harbaugh would do for James Franklin, Ohio State resume? Yeah, to just be that close, to have one win against competitive and have a one win win and competitive games against Michigan. And he's in a a job that's defined by that game. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and and James is not, but that's it. So that's, let me, let me steer it to James. We're bouncing all over the place, but he was a guy I definitely wanted to get to because you and Andy had talked about this on Sunday and it's becoming like a theme throughout, I think, college football talkers like us. And that is like, Okay, maybe it's a not a bad time for for Franklin to try something new. Maybe it's not a terrible time for him to, you know, look at a USC or maybe a Florida if that comes open. But then there's the idea of, well, is now he hot enough a candidate so that some school can bring him in and sell him as like, oh, man, we got James Franklin because he's he might go seven and five this year. Now, if they split their last two games, he's sitting there at seven and five. So now. So here's a guy with a really good resume, clearly can recruit at a high level, has the ability to like be a big time coach. There are a few of any of those guys available. Most of the guys, the resumes you'll find are flimsy compared to James Franklin. But all of a sudden, is he not good enough for USC? Is he not good enough for LSU? It's such a strange spot that we're even talking about this. Like the simple fact that we're having that conversation means something is broken here. It's weird. It's weird that he's a candidate or a rumored candidate for some of the biggest jobs in the country, but at the very same time, Penn State fans are tired of him. Yeah. And maybe there's something to be said for, hey, every seven or eight years, 10 years, like unless you're Nick Saban, like maybe you should just move on. I mean, here's the thing that I think, and I said this on Andy's show, and I'll say it here. I think James Franklin undoubtedly should take the USC job if that's a if that's a possibility. You reset your clock. You get to live in California. You're in a winnable conference. You're out of Ohio State's shadow, and you're in a very fertile recruiting territory, all of which I think James Franklin would, would do very well in. Um, but I also think that it's weird that Penn State fans want him gone because I'm not necessarily sure that Penn State hasn't reached its ceiling as a program. As we talk about reasonable expectations, I'm not sure that Penn State's expectations are be in the playoff every other year. Their expectations are to assemble a good enough team to give Ohio State a problem in the Big Ten East, maybe win it once every five years uh, that game, win the Big Ten East, and maybe put yourself in a position to make the playoff. And now that the playoff is likely expanding to 12, Penn State is like the biggest beneficiary of any program in America for that for that expanded playoff inclusion. So yeah, I think like over, me, the, over the last eight years or seven years, they probably would have been in three or four times. Yes, yes. And that's better than zero, which is yeah. what it's been. 
And the one year they won the Big Ten, they had a weird loss to Pitt in the non-conference that kept them out of the playoff. And, you know, but they did what they what Michigan hasn't been able to do. The only other team that's been able to do that was Michigan State under Mark D'Antonio during a time in which I think D'Antonio was maybe one of the top five coaches in America for doing what he was doing at Michigan State. But to me, I think it's a be careful what you wish for moment at Penn State, because if your expectations are, well, James Franklin is, is run stale here. This is this isn't good enough anymore. You're going to go hire somebody. Don't know who that would be. And your hope is that there's an improvement. And I'm not necessarily sure that Penn State is in a, in a position to have a stark improvement as a program, because the only improvement that would be would be consistently beating Ohio State more, winning the Big Ten more and competing for championships. Other than that, they've been a really solid program. It's a big picture improvement. What you're talking about, like, like, see, I think what people are looking for is that is the is the micro. Give me that one awesome year. Like, why haven't we had our one year where we and they did beat Penn State one year and win the big, excuse me, Ohio State one year and win the Big Ten, but they didn't get to the playoff and they didn't play, you know, for a national championship. And I think, like, you could have you could find a coach that maybe takes it to that next level. But I don't necessarily think that makes that person a better coach. That means that things may have just broken better that year for that coach. In other words, I think Franklin is operating right near Penn State ceiling. And at some point, they might have the year where it clicks. Now, I want to get to, again, Stars Matter guy. They have a really good class lined up. Yeah, I think it's number five in the country right now. Now, it probably will sink back a little bit as some of these other big powers fill up their classes. But they've got a quarterback at the Cleveland area who's supposed to be dynamite. So I've heard mixed signals on Franklin. This goes into a little bit of reporting here of like, you know, I've heard people tell me, no, like, I don't think he wants to leave. Like the idea, like he's going to have to rebuild at, at USC. And if you look at what they have at, at, at Penn State, it's not broken. It's just a bad year where they've lost a bunch of close games or not a great year where they've lost a bunch of close games. And they got this great recruiting class and this awesome quarterback coming in. Like James might be looking at this and saying, no, 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 no. Give me an extension. Well, let me try to see if I can leverage this into an extension. And I'm ready to run with Ohio state or at least give it a shot over the next two or three years. Yeah. I think in theory that that makes sense. Uh, but this isn't just one bad year. And I don't know what you think about um, the COVID year. I don't yeah. Know what, I, I think that you, is, I think are you excusing that? everything? Frankly, I think that is tainting a lot of programs and giving us maybe having, maybe making us have a hard time of like, wait, was last year attached to this year? In other words, was well, like, what's your take on it? Uh, I, so it's 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 a case by case, and maybe I'm giving Franklin way too much leeway here. That was a mess last year with Penn State, as far as like they had sent their kids home, and they brought them back, and and then tried to prepare for the season. Um, his wife wasn't around. They had his family wasn't around. So I don't know if that makes it harder to to just to be a, an engaged coach with his wife and kids not around. They lose Micah Parsons. They lose Journey Brown. Like yeah. again, maybe I'm cutting him too much slack, but I looked at last year as that's an anomaly. I'm not counting it for Penn State. I'm going to start fresh this year. And this year they beaten Wisconsin, beaten Auburn, and then had four other games where they lost by a total of nine points. And that, or excuse me, 18 points. And that includes nine points to Ohio State. So their three other losses are by a total of three points or by, excuse me, by a total of nine points, an average of three. I just think that, hey, man, sometimes things don't break your way. 
Like sometimes you're just going to have one of those years where things don't break your way. Penn State's 2021 class is bad for their standard, and their 2022 class is going to be outstanding. And I think the quarterback, Drew Aller, that you're talking about is could be the guy that brings them over the hump. But, yeah, it's kind of like a weird – you want to convince me that that James Franklin is the guy long term at Penn State? I'm willing to have that conversation. And if you want to convince me that Penn State would be better off without him, I'm willing to have that conversation. But I yeah, think I don't I'm know. Actually, I, I'm yeah, I'm, yeah. Giving this, I'm giving the like the devil's the devil's advocate side here because you took one. But I, frankly, but I think he'd be insane not to go to USC. Though. I literally wrote on Saturday that he should go. So so yeah. like I'm I'm taking the other side of my own argument because I step back and talk to some people and they're like, yeah, I don't know if he wants to go. Because you should go because there is some building to be done at USC. I don't like I don't think you're going to walk into USC and have that. Well, the thing is, because the Pac-12 is so down, you could walk into USC. You literally could walk in in one class in two years. In two years, you could have it. You could have it rolling at USC. And I think that he has the personality and the recruiting chops from just uh, being, you know, that type of personality to maybe get it done there. I think he'd be a relatable person in California. And I think that that would make sense. But like from a personal standpoint, we just want to reset your clock. No, I agree with that, too. But but he might be able to do that at Penn State. He might be able to get like a long extension there. I mean, I, I don't know if there's a great because now the other odd thing that happened that's happening with Penn State is Penn State has to be looking at the field at the pool of available candidates and going, oh, wait a second, Luke Fickle. He would come. He might not go to USC, but I bet you he would come here. Matt Campbell might not be down for going to USC or LSU, but I bet he'd come here and I bet that would work well here. I'll give you another name. Maybe a little bit of a stretch because I've never seen him recruit at an elite level, but Dave Clawson, that might work. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, That, that might work here. And so, so again, it's not just a matter of like what the pool of candidate looked like. It's what the pool looks like compared to what you have to offer. So if all of a sudden, if I'm Penn state, maybe I'm not dying to extend James and I'm going to roll the dice. Cause I don't, because as much as you never know until the guy has the job, I'm feeling like the candidates available to me are better than they are available to LSU. Yeah. Right. Well, and then it goes right back to the same, the same discussion of, you don't know what you're getting until you get it. And it's like Dave Clawson has done a tremendous job at Wake Forest. And he did so by redshirting guys and, and making sure that they, you know, had experience in place so that they could run the office that they run and it's worked. But at the same time at Penn state, you can't do that. You can't do that. Or if you want to look at, you know, Iowa state's coach, Matt Campbell, I mean, he's done a tremendous job of getting middle tier prospects, developing them into uh, a really good, um, you know, team. And then once every few years, Iowa state's really good. And I think you have to also examine Iowa state slide this year as part of the entire picture. And it's like, I'm not sure that tremendous jobs at middle tier programs is a good enough prereq to being hired at LSU or Penn state, because those schools expect something different and they expect it to be done in a different way. Like the, the Dave Clawson way doesn't translate to either of those those two schools. I don't know that Matt Campbell way. way might. Yeah, yeah. Well, the fickle way might because fickle has proven uh, to not only be a great head coach, but also has the chops from a recruiting standpoint to attack the one state in the Big Ten that you absolutely have to attack uh, in order to be successful. And that's Ohio. So, like, I mean, you, you could totally make the case, but I also don't think that Luke Fickle would be a great candidate for for USC. 
So like you have to kind of, you know, maybe he would, and I'm, I'm selling him short, but what I know about him and the way that he's been able to excel at Cincinnati, I'm not sure it translates to go dominate the five-star recruiting pool of Southern California, because that's not what he's done. And that's, I mean, I'm not saying he can't do it, but he hasn't done it yet. And that he shouldn't like, there's so many coaches that go from group of five schools or middle tier programs who have exceeded expectations at those programs that are hired at big time national championship caliber programs. And then they fail because they weren't able to do what they did at the previous stop. But it's like being a sports writer and then applying to be an engineer. It's not the same job well, or you know being a mean? sports writer and then covering, you know, covering government. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Like if like, somebody yeah, sent me to, like to the Washington post to cover the, the, the ongoing political climate of the country, I would be completely unqualified right. for that job. Right. Right. Or well, well and, and it's actually a pretty good comparison because like you might have you have the basic knowledge of a reporter. OK, I need to make sources. I need to learn how to uh, I need to make relationships here. I need right. to understand. Like, I know I need to study things. So you the, like the basic acumen is there, but the blueprint is different and the job right. is so different that it will take you a while to. So so the 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 the, the choice is two things. I'm going to hire you and you're going to learn how to do it this particular job because the job you had is similar but it's not the same so you're gonna have to learn how to do this but that's the other thing nobody's gonna nobody's gonna take allow anybody the time to learn on the job anymore also if you're if you get hired see that's the thing too this is a really interesting and i'm happy you said that the engineer analogy was bad the the journalist was perfect if i get hired at the washington post to cover politics the expectation of inherently holding that job is that I'm already excellent at that. Exactly. You don't just go from uh, covering uh, college football recruiting to the net, the Washington post as a political writer, because I was a journalist somewhere else. You have to take years. So like to me, how many times has a college program hired a political writer from the athletic and then it didn't work out. So I'm not saying that I wouldn't be able to learn. Maybe if you gave me three or four years in that climate, I'd be a pretty good political writer. Probably not. But I also feel like if you're being hired for that job to begin with, there's no patience for training. You work at the Washington freaking post right. get out here and go be a good reporter. Right. You know what I mean? So like if you work at LSU or USC or even Penn state to a lesser extent, the expectation is that you've already mastered the skill sets that are necessary in order to get things going faster. So listen, Luke fickle is a great coach. There's no question about it. I watched and I covered him when he was at Ohio state. He's done a tremendous job at Cincinnati, but on the other side of the coin, too, he is a sports writer. And if you hire him at USC, you're expecting him to be a political writer. And that's a really tough thing. Maybe he'd be a great. Maybe he'd be faster than me at, at learning that transition. <laughs> but I also don't know that there are a lot of great top line political writers from The New York Times on the free agent market right now. So that's part of the gamble, right? You, no matter who you hire, you're going to have to expect some sort of training at some point. Uh, have you ever done news or any other reporting or just or just sports? Just sports. OK, so I I, I had to do some non sports writing and I'm just going off on a tangent here. Um, some non sports writing when I was at the AP in Mississippi, like there were days where it's like, hey, Ralph, there's a there's a news conference at the governor's mansion. We have nobody else. Go do it. 
<laughs> and here's sort of the background. Go figure it out. And I only bring that up to say, like, listen, it is some of the same skills, but I, I bring it up to say, like, what other type of reporting do you think you could? In other words, if I said, Ari, you can't be a sports writer, but you can be a journalist, would you stay in the profession? I do think I would. Yeah, I, I think that there are certain like politics is completely over my head. You know, like I, I'm not a very political person, and I don't know if that's a good or bad thing to say when the current climate of the country, but I'm just not triggered one way or the other. I just, kinda, <laughs> yeah. you know, I just kind of do, you know, believe what I believe and try my best to right. kind of sift through it. And you vote and there and, you go. Yeah. And, that's and then that's gonna... it. Like <laughs> I do my best to be a, a good American citizen, but I also am not on politico.com screaming in the comments section and I don't engage in arguments with people. I just do my best to be who I am. Okay. But like, I also feel like I could be like maybe a good, like I like, I have an interest in investing. I think it'd be really cool to be a, a financial writer or, right. you know, to like write about, you know, businesses expanding. And I think that there probably could be a, a I would have to learn for sure. And I think like news would be kind of fun at yeah. times, depending on what kind of stories you're covering. But when you start getting into like topics that are so bogged down in minutia and like uh, are, and it's necessary to have institutional knowledge. Yeah. I have no institutional knowledge of politics. Yeah. So that would scare me the same way. It would be hard to hire the Phoenix suns writer to go cover the jets. You know, there's a certain, there's a certain level of understanding. Institutional you, knowledge is a huge yes. thing in journalism that, that I yes. think it's like, and this is a, the, I didn't intend this to become a journalism conversation, but like institutional knowledge is the thing that I think gets undersold in journalism a lot. Um, the idea that, and, and frankly, like even coming, like coming up through the business, I realized when I think back to like my time in Mississippi covering like the SEC schools and, and, and like Mississippi sports, like I didn't do a good enough, like I did, I, I did a good enough job that like I moved on and got a better job, but I didn't do enough job of sort of like, oh, I need to learn this place, like really deeply yeah. sink into learning this place. Like, I think it was two or three or four years in. And I was already starting like on my way to being phased out when I finally realized, like, I don't know enough about like the guts of this machine here. Yes. And I think that's the, like in journalism. One of the things that I think like what I, what I would tell young journalists is like, in, like you, you, you're not going to have the institutional knowledge if you're walking in, but you got to figure out a way to get that. You got to figure out a way to learn the guts of what you're right. covering here, or you're just going to miss a ton of context. And yeah, context and confidence are probably the two most important traits of being able to write a, a very important, well-read story. I mean, people want context, they crave expertise. And if you don't know what you're writing, it's going to result in poor writing and a bad story. And you know, our job as journalists is to re to research the things that we're writing about and to, you know, interview people to, you know, our, people view interview as like a way to get quotes. But I do uh, hundreds of interviews every week where I don't quote anybody because interviews are a way to gather information. They're not just a way so you can put quotation marks. You're learning. Your You're like, trying to learn. Learning. Yes. Yeah. 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 And like, luckily for me and you, we're not in a, in a job with a $15 million buyout and in, in, in results <laughs> that need to be done a week or I mean a year from now, but I also feel like there's very, like we don't view coaches as people, Ralph. We, we view them as, as robots who are supposed to be sent down from wherever they are made to make your football program, a national championship contender. And just like they're moving to a new place. They like, I just moved to Dallas from Columbus, Ohio. I'm still making friends. 
you know, if you, you know, James Franklin doesn't know the coaches out there as well as he would need to, you know, there's a certain learning curve to anything in life, whether you're a head coach or a journalist. And in, in order to be qualified for a position, you knew you need to be an expert in that field um, because we're talking about the highest. If you like look about USC and you think about it, including professional football in the NFL, USC is a top 40 football coaching job on the planet. And if you think about oh, every, no doubt. And if yeah. you think about every single coaching position, whether it be a high school football assistant, a group of five head coach, a division two head coach, a power five head coach, and then a power. I mean, if you are the head coach at USC, you are the master of all masters of that craft. So it's really, really hard to put yourself in a position where you're saying, Hey, you know, we're USC, we're going to go hire Luke fickle. And it's like, is Luke fickle one of the top 40 coaches on the face of the earth with the institutional knowledge necessary to acquire such a prestigious position? No, well, probably not. So, but like, so there's a leap of faith there that that is important for every single one of these hires. And when you're talking about the buyout money and the contracts and the That's annual it. salaries, the stakes are just so much higher. And then it's just so much more magnified. And they, you know, there is a parallel between coaching and journalism that I'll make mm-hmm. when you're a journalist, when you write a story, everything that be- it's the most cut and dry thing in the world, it's your name and your work. You know, if you work in corporate America, you are putting yourself out there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You can blend in and you can do team exercises or, you know, send an email or ask for help or whatever in coaching you're on the sideline, your name is on the ticker and you win or you lose. And the fact of the matter is, is that we're in this weird dynamic where there's a bunch of the top 40 jobs in the world at a certain position or in a certain profession. And there aren't enough candidates that have the necessary requirements on their resume in order to be thought of, or at least expected well enough to not have to learn once they get there. Yeah. All right. So I'm glad we, I'm glad I brought you all on today, Ari, because I had a feeling this was going to be a conversation that sort of started one place and just sort of twisted and turned. And I'm glad it did because yeah, it was, was good. To, yeah. Cause it was fun to do that, but we also have to preview the weekend's games. So I'm going to take a quick break here on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Going to come back with Ari Wasserman from The Athletic, and then we're going to each give our top five games of what is a pretty loaded schedule this weekend in college football. You're listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast with your host, Ralph Russo, the Associated Press College Football Writer. If you have any questions for our host or any of our guests, email the show at Top 25 mailbag at gmail.com and to get the rest of your football fix also take a listen to the ap pro football podcast with host rob Motti, writer and sports radio personality as he tackles all the important news on and off the field of the national football league and provide you with insider exclusives and in-depth analysis along with insightful interviews with hall of famers current players coaches and executives Rob will take you around the league, break down the biggest games, and keep you in the know only the way AP can. Like, subscribe, and comment wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. And we're back on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I am joined today by Ari Wasserman from The Athletic. He is the Stars Matter guy. Um, Ari it is a pretty damn good slate of games this weekend. Um, the way we do it here, and I appreciate you doing it with me, we each do our top five most intriguing games. Not best games, 
they can be sometimes they can be sickos games. Uh, Brett, <laughs> Brett McMurphy had a whole bunch of sickos games last week. He threw Clemson, uh, UConn on his list. Um, but the games are so good this weekend that you don't have to dive too deep into the sickos games. Like there's just a lot of good ones. So the way this works is you give me your number five, I give you my number five, and we talk about the games and, and merrily we go along. So, yeah, I think I, st- I cut you off of the knees a little bit and I just picked the five best ones. I've got a plenty of sickos games, but I, I guess I'll just start with my uh, number five. Then and we'll work yeah. our way up. Yeah, go um, for it. My number five is f- wait. Did I have to do the ones that I sent you? Does it have to be in order or can I just rank them now? You you can rank them now. I, I have them written in the order you sent, but I don't mind if if you go off the board there because that could be fun. So you you tell okay. you rank them now. My number five would be I don't know. The ranking is OK. OK. My number five would be Alabama, Arkansas. Okay. Because I wonder, to me, we talk about how all the other teams in the top five are inherently flawed this year, right? But Alabama has consistently been ranked number two in the college football playoff rankings, despite the fact that they have a loss. They don't have any marquee wins. And I think the expectation is that Alabama is just Alabama. And even though they lost, they have earned the benefit of the doubt. And I'm personally okay with it because Nick Saban's resume speaks for itself. Yeah. But the, Arkansas, talent, the talent is overwhelming yeah. and you just know that it could figure it out. Like whatever That's the right. issues are, there's enough talent there to figure it out. And Alabama gets a certain benefit of the doubt that other programs in its same general vicinity don't. Like Ohio State. It has been earned for 10 years. That's right. And I'm okay with that. And I think you're okay with that. But I am also very curious about this Arkansas game because Arkansas is sneaky talented. You know, and I don't think people realize, you know, if they're if they're hitting on all cylinders, Arkansas is certainly a team that can, you know, make you uh, sweat a little bit. And I'm not saying that I anticipate that Alabama is going to lose this game. But if there are any issues there underlying check engine lights on that we've ignored just because they have Alabama in their in their end zones, this is the type of game where that can creep up. So I'm very curious, you know, as I anticipate that Alabama will continue to be ranked number two through the weekend that if there are any issues, if anything's going to pop up in this game, maybe they won't, but I'm, I'm kind of on alert there. I'll buy that. I'll buy that. I'm not, I'm not as tuned into this game, but listen, it's Alabama and Arkansas is pretty good. So it's worth keeping an eye on to see again, just like, you know, how does Alabama sort itself out? And, you know, they've, they've reached death star mode a couple of times this year. So I'd be interested to see if they can get there again against Arkansas. My number five is in the ACC and it's wake against Clemson. Now, Wake basically seals up the division if they beat Clemson. And the, the path for Clemson to win this division involves just all kinds of carnage with North Carolina State, Wake losing twice. I think Wake's last game might be against Duke. So that is highly unlikely. But I have a little bit of stars matter in my heart, uh, mm-hmm. Ari. That's why we get along okay. I love I've, that about you. I've got a little bit of that in there. And so I have con- this entire season – Watch Clemson going, yeah, they'll figure it out one week. They're going to figure this out. At some point, they're going to figure it out. We are on week 10, and they have still not quite figured it out. But I think they could. I still think that this – well, first of all, the defense is very good. Wake's Wake's defense is not very good. And I keep wondering if, like, maybe this is the week Clemson figures it out. And Wake could still win this division by winning the next week. So it's not like Clemson flips the division here. Wake could still – you know, be the ACC champion, ACC champion, Wake Forest. That is still a thing that could happen. But but I really am interested to see how they function against this Clemson defense on the road and if Clemson figures it out. 
after 10 weeks. Well, like what, even if Clemson does figure it out, like we're at the point of who cares, right? Well, I mean, they could go nine and three, right? Yeah. yeah I know, right. but like, that's so far beneath what they're supposed to be. Um, you know, and I get it. Like, but they kicked a lot of field goals against UConn last weekend. So like, I don't know if I'm, if I'm a hundred percent on board with the idea. Clemson's a four point favorite against the a top 12 team. So, you know, I'm certainly interested in this, but I'm more interested to see, I'm not, I'm not so interested in whether or not Clemson's going to turn it on because I think their ship has sailed. I'm very curious to see what wake will do in a game against a team as talented as Clemson. Well, can I also ask you this too? If wake beats and, and I know Clemson is not that good, but you know, we all have our perceptions and stars matter and things. Lines. Yeah. I do wonder how much they just beat North Carolina state, which the committee liked. We'll steer it back to play. We haven't been talking playoff uh, rankings because the playoff rankings come out tonight. We don't know what they're going to be, but they're probably not going to be very much different because all the teams won last week except for Oklahoma, and the committee hated hated Oklahoma anyway. But I will bring it back to Wake because Wake is sort of like lurking around. Is like that they could go twelve and one. Does that mean they catch Cincinnati? It's that's unbeaten. And again, as much as you can tell me. Clemson is not any is not particularly good this year. Does that trigger something in the committee where they go, well, maybe, you know, Clemson, that's 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 a pretty nice win for Wake. So I, I guess I kind of wonder what what Wake Forest ceiling is, especially here. being on the road. Yeah, I do wonder what Wake Forest like playoff ceiling is. And let, let, let's have a five second playoff discussion here. Do you think we have established the fact that Cincinnati undefeated? will be ahead at the end of the year of a one loss big 12 champion and a no. one or a one loss wake uh, ACC champion in wake. I don't think that's established at all. You think they could get caught by wake? I, I don't know about wake, but you, uh, you but think if, they if, could get caught by Oklahoma or like Oklahoma. If Oklahoma beats Oklahoma state and maybe beats them twice and wins the big 12 and is a one loss champion. I think that it would get dicey for Cincinnati. I think that it's an uphill battle for Cincinnati. Okay. I think that we we fall into this trap, and it's just based on what happens every year. We fall into this trap every single season. Um, and this will be a nice segue, Ralph, because my number four is Cincinnati SMU. Go for it. Yeah. Um, I don't know if Cincinnati is playing well enough where I believe they're going to be undefeated at the end of the year. Am I crazy? No, I think that's my – when I complain about Cincinnati, I think it lies not in they're not winning enough – they're not winning pretty enough for me to rank them X or Y. It's – they're not playing well enough to give me confidence that they can run the table. That's my complaint about Cincinnati. Yes. Yeah. And if you start putting them on the same stage as Alabama or Georgia, you know, things get a little dicey there. So, you know, SMU might be, are they the best team that they're facing for the rest of the year? Maybe Houston. They have East Carolina, which has you know, been, but, but here's the thing, Ari, like you say, well, East Carolina is not any good, but they're going to go on the road to East Carolina on Thanksgiving weekend on a Friday. Like they just struggled with Tulsa at home. Like they didn't quite, they had a, they were 10 point lead USF with the ball with three minutes left in the game. So why not lose to East Carolina? Like, that's what I'm saying. Like what I've seen of Cincinnati is sure. That's a team that, that could get, it could get weird at even in East Carolina. Yeah. And SMU is a pretty good team. I mean, it's an 11 point spread. So, I mean, I guess people believe that it's a double digit win there, but I, I think that's going to be a sneaky good game. And I'm very curious to see, you know, if Cincinnati comes out and wins 56 to 10, then I think that kind of rejiggers your brain a little bit too. Yeah. Um, but I do think that the there's an uphill battle for a group of five teams to make it. 
And I think there, there might be an abundance of candidates at the end of the year that might hop them. My personal opinion is that if Cincinnati runs the table, I would put them in over a one loss Oklahoma hypothetically, but I don't think the committee will view it that way. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of with you on that one. So just so you see, since you uh, see SMU is my number three, I'll get to my number four now because it's actually Oklahoma and we kind of touched on Oklahoma, but it's Iowa state at Oklahoma. Now Iowa state has not had the year that a, a lot of people thought they would. I got to tell you, I'm not that shocked because it is, you know, again, stars matter. It's Iowa state. Like you're sealing, I don't know if Iowa State's team is that much different than it was last year. Last year, they won a lot of close games, and this year, they're losing a lot of close games. That's the life of like a lot of college football, right? One of the reasons why you're a good coach, Matt Campbell, is because you're able to sort of live in the thin margins and have success at a place like Iowa State. I think Iowa State's going to have something for Oklahoma. That's not to say I think they're going to beat Oklahoma, but I think Iowa State's going to have a little something for Oklahoma this week. Oklahoma doesn't lose two in a row very often, though I think they did last year for the first time in like in a zillion years, in about 20 years. Um, Caleb Williams still looks like a kid who's like super talented, but kind of trying to figure it out. Um, Again, like I, I'm not necessarily. Well, I mean, I, I know you and our, you and Andy pick games. I'm necessarily picking this game. I might pick Iowa State to win this game. Like, I think this is going to be a really good game. And you're right, though. I think if Oklahoma beats Iowa State, beats Oklahoma State twice, that might be a path for Oklahoma. It also could be a path for Oklahoma State to beat Oklahoma twice. Well, the yeah, the problem too here is that a I'm not necessarily convinced that I think Oklahoma is any good. And the same thing went for the committee. Um, but two, they don't have any quality wins anymore. I mean, they, they lost to Baylor last week. It was number 13. And other than that, no ranked wins on the schedule, unless I'm forgetting somebody. No, no ranked yeah, wins. It would so, be Oklahoma State twice. That would be Oklahoma your State twice. It would be Oklahoma State twice. Oklahoma so. State twice would be a pretty impressive run. Yeah. But I think that I'm with you on this. I don't, I don't think that Oklahoma is going to win this weekend. Okay. Number three for you is? Uh, my number three would be. And this is kind of a sicko game, but Florida yeah, this is two. this is your one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just want to see if Dan Mullen's team has a pulse. Simple as that. Yeah, they play Missouri. They're at Missouri, I think. Right. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, listen. I think if he has any chance of surviving, they got to win these last two. They got to beat Missouri, and they got to beat a bad Florida State team. But but a Florida State team that was good enough to beat Miami. Mike Norvell is going to get everybody else in the state fired. Yeah, well, like, how crazy is that? Which is funny because he was almost fired a month ago. <laughs> I, I mean, the thing of the idea that the, the guy who lost to Jacksonville State is now the most uh, the 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 power five coach in Florida with the with the best and most secure job status is bananas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the fact that he got his team to fight and they look super comp- competent all of a sudden. You know, I, I think right now that my pick blindly would be Florida State in the Florida game. So. Certainly uh, nice to see them kind of rebound a little bit there. Yeah, and, and you're right. This is definitely a sickos game because you're looking for a car wreck. And if Missouri beats them, it's 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 the continuation of like a of a, of a lengthy car wreck of it's, a, it's of a, a train month. wreck because multiple cars are involved. Yeah, yes. That's exactly it. Yes, the, yeah. the car wreck becomes a train a train wreck. Uh, my number three, as I said, is UC SMU. So we'll go right to your number two, Ari. Ohio State, Michigan State. Um, I think a lot of people will view this as maybe one of the better games of the weekend. I certainly do. I think it's funny that it's a 20 point spread, but. And we both have it as number two. So, which means we both have the same number one. So we'll just sit on these two games for a bit. Okay. Yeah. So then number one, obviously is Utah and Oregon, but I think Ohio state 
um, is a flawed team, but I'm wondering if they've turned it on. And if they've turned it on, then Michigan State doesn't have a chance. So, like, I'm very curious to see, uh, you know, how that game plays out. Um, and I find it really hard to distinguish between Ohio State. Okay, they're they're the top of the Big Ten, like they always are. But Michigan State, Michigan, Penn State, Wisconsin, Iowa, all these teams kind of blend together. And I'm very curious to see if Michigan State actually can push Ohio State and make this a game in, in the Ohio Stadium. All of those teams other than Ohio State blend together. Yeah, Ohio State's in its own yeah. class. Yeah. And yeah. then the other teams kind of blend together. And it's like every year it's the same theme. Are any of these middle tier Big Ten teams going to be able to beat Ohio State? Well, not even middle tier, upper tier, but not the Ohio up, State tier. Up, upper tier. Yeah. I say middle tier because there's five of them. Yeah. So it's like half the conference. Yeah. But yeah, no, I'm just, it's at home for Ohio State. So it might be a little bit tougher, but. You know, Michigan State and Michigan, I think, are very similar. I'm very curious to see if Ohio State's going to have to sweat going into Indianapolis. Yeah, a red flag stats for Michigan State that uh, uh, Tom Fornelli so, tweeted him out. the secondary yes. one? <laughs> well, it's, it's, well it, it has to do with pass defense. It, it, it's, yeah. First of all, Michigan State's pass defense has been very bad, though on the bright side, they give up a lot of dinks and dunks. Like their, their, their MO is we're going to give up a lot of completions, but we'll sort of tighten up in the red zone and that and we'll keep you to kicking field goals. Now, that did not happen against Purdue. That did not happen. Though Purdue even kicked a couple of field goals, but Purdue was just constantly in the red zone. Uh, and Ohio State has had some red zone issues. But, yeah, I mean, the secondary, the pass defense things, uh, I think Michigan State is near the bottom in the uh, like the bottom 10 or so in the country in getting three and outs. They just don't get off the field. That, that, that like is not going to work against Ohio State and those receivers. Like I just see so many red flags for Michigan State in this matchup, like on the field. There's so many things that just that like are like very scary to me if I am Michigan State. Yeah, I don't know if I want to give dink and dunks up to those athletes up in Columbus. That's so, what I'm saying. Yeah, That's yeah, what I'm saying. Yeah, just, you know, let them get into space, makes one man miss, and it's a 60 yard touchdown on a dink and dunk. So, you know, I, but I, I, I feel like people get upset with me because I don't, I don't know if I give the teams the credit that they deserve or the fans crave, but it's like, I thought Michigan state stunk before they lost. You know what I mean? Like I, I just, I've seen these teams are the same every year. They're, they're limited from a, and it's like, they're really good for in comparison to what they're supposed to be in their expectations. But when you start putting them on the same level playing field as Bama, it's like, they just don't match up. So Ohio state is a third is like, maybe the second or third best team in the country this year. And they're closer to Alabama than anybody else. These teams will play. I'm very curious if they'll be able to prove me wrong. Yeah, I'll buy that. I mean, I, I think Ohio state, I've been waiting for Ohio state to take off. And then what happened is I went to Columbus and I saw them play against Penn state and they didn't, they kicked a bunch of field goals and then they kicked a bunch of field goals against Nebraska. And you're like, well, maybe this is just their deal this year. Maybe they're just not going to get that thing fixed. I will say this. My last thought on Ohio state is, Ohio State's offense against Georgia's defense, I think, is the matchup that would make the most interesting playoff. Now, I don't know if anybody is really, really threatening Georgia's defense, but if there's anybody who can, it's the team with three NFL wide receivers, a possible first-round tailback in a couple of years, and I know their offensive line has been a little wonky, but all those guys are NFL players. Yep, you're right. That's that's uh that's a I'm with you on that 100%. Okay. So number 1 we both have Oregon and Utah because I think it's the highest stakes game. 
to a certain well, no, Michigan, Michigan State, Ohio State is super high stakes as well. Because yeah. if Michigan State does win, they're gonna win the Big Ten. And go to the playoff. They're, they're gonna win the Big Ten East as long as they don't lose to Penn State. They're gonna win the Big Ten East and they could very well go to the playoff. But but with Oregon, hey, listen, this is this is Oregon's biggest test, and their next biggest test after this could be Utah again. Yeah, well, they're dogs in this game. <laughs> so that's why they're number one to me because Oregon is supposed to be a team that's in the playoff. Um, I don't know if they're there yet, despite the fact that they beat Ohio State on the road. Super impressive win, but I don't find it to be a very super impressive team. I think that they're pretty good uh, for the Pac-12. They've managed to not lose again because there's nobody equipped to beat them. But I just don't know if you put them on the same field again with Ohio State now or Alabama or Georgia, if this team stacks up to the quality that you would need to win a playoff game. And if you're underdogs against Utah in your own conference, I think that's an indication of that. So I'm very But, but here's the problem, Ari. I think there are only three teams with the capability of winning a playoff game. That's right. So, so, so there has to be another team. Which is, uh, if you want to have me on next week, we can discuss why I think 12 teams is too much for an expanded playoff. Yeah, we won't but get like, to that now. but Yeah, yeah. But I do think that Oregon has it all in their control, and I just don't know if I'm buying that they're there yet. The last couple of weeks, I feel like they've come up with this their identity, which is they're just going to mash people. Like the offensive line has looked very good. Just great in the Pac-12. They've run for almost yeah. 300 yards in every game. And they've done it in like a really in like a in a, in a real like impressive fashion. Running the quarterback, running the, running tailback. Uh, Thibodeau is a is a is a puma man. That guy is a wild animal pouncing on stuff in the uh, in the Serengeti. It's incredible. He might be the best player in college football. He's pretty close though. I think Will Anderson actually might be better. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> shocker that an Alabama player checks in at one. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, so, but I am, I'm super interested. And, and, you know, listen, like Utah has also found an identity here. Like they're running the ball really well, which is sort of their identity anyway, but they've got maybe their best quarterback in a while. And I love uh, the kid Huntley. I always thought he was a super underrated uh, college player from a couple of years ago, but like, it, it, this is, looks like, a, this looks like a Utah team. Right. Is what I'm saying. Like it took them a little while to get here, but this still kind of looks like I don't know if it's a vintage Utah team because I don't know if it's a vintage Utah defense as far as like those like a lot of men in that that front seven who are just super physical. Like I don't know if they're they're quite that, but they they look like a Utah team. They look like a a team that like does does its business in the run game and is going to like try to beat you up. And it's going to be an. Int- I'm interested to see Cameron rising because I haven't seen a ton of them. Like again, they they have sort of gotten their act together in the shadows a bit uh, over the last few weeks, and I'm interested to see how this is going to turn out again on the big stage. Oh yeah, yep. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you 100. And if Oregon wins this game, I'm going to say it right now, and you're, I'm going to get you some ratings, Ralph. <laughs> I would be shocked if they beat them twice. You think so? You, you so you think that Oregon will. could beat them once, but not twice. I think that it's hard to beat the same team twice for anybody in any same year. I don't know that you could beat them twice in three weeks or however long it's going to be. Especially if there's not a massive talent gap. Yeah, especially especially if you're talking about a game that's got a three-point spread. Um, Have you ever covered a game at Rice-Eccles? Yeah, no, I know. No, I haven't. It's a a good site. It's it's a great... I mean, it's mountains in the back because, of course, it's... Ralph, I'm going to tell you, my entire dream... And I don't know if I'll do this maybe uh, later on in life, but I would love to just cover one Mountain West year. And I know that I know that Utah's not in the Mountain West, but just those stadiums out there. Yeah. You know, my my fiance's brother lives in Salt Lake. I've been out there quite a oh, bit. Oh yeah. 
It's it's beautiful. It's just amazing. And I just want to cover. I mean, tell me that as a sports writer, the road trips in the Mountain West aren't the most elite of any conference. There are some good road trips. There are like Fort Collins is a great city. Interesting place. Like, again, especially if like if you are a little bit outdoorsy, like if you're just and that and that, and that just mean, might mean like you like to look at mountains and drink. That's me. Yes. Mountains. Yes. Like that, that qualifies as outdoorsy to me. Like it's a it, yeah, there's a lot of cool places within the Mountain West and Rice Eccles, a beautiful place to see a game. B, that crowd gets into it. Yes. Yeah. That that will be a ferocious road setting. They, they have a lot of Autzen in them. I, I don't again, I'm not sure if, if, if Ohio State ever took you to Autzen. I went is, there in college. Yeah. Autzen's a rowdy place. Utah's a rowdy place. This will be a fun one this weekend. I think it's a it's a it's a primetime game. So cool. You don't have to, have to you don't have to stay up until two o'clock in the morning to watch, which I also think I have a weird theory about Oregon and why a lot of people are like kind of like not totally sold and complaining a little bit. Why does Oregon always make things so tough? I think it's because they they're making us stay up late on the yes. East Coast. Yeah. Well, last weekend I had to wait till the end of the Oregon Washington game to cover to do the Andy Staples show. Yeah, and me too. Like I can't go to yeah. bed until they're they're done and like they fumble going into the end zone. I'm like I am literally in my pajamas ready to go. Come on, like, let's wrap this thing up here. Yeah. We're 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 done. We are I'm going to do my last update on the story and I'm going to get some sleep cuz I got to get up early on Sunday morning and then Anthony Brown fumbles and I got to stay up an extra half an hour and that I think has bled into me being like frustrated with Oregon. That's not fair, but I'm just saying that that's part of it. Yeah, I think I'm with you. Okay. Ari Wasserman from the Athletic. Hey man, Thanks for taking so much time with me today. Sure. It was a really great conversation. You are welcome aboard here any uh, anytime. We will definitely get you back on. My best to uh, our friend Andy Staples, and uh, good luck with the rest of the season. Thanks, Ralph. I appreciate it. I'm just a text away. Now, three now. First down, the NCAA had its constitutional convention on Monday. An online Q&A session with membership where it discussed the pared down version of the Constitution that was released a week before. So this is kind of boring, but here is what you need to know summed up. The new Constitution clears the way for the divisions in the NCAA to govern themselves. The idea of D3 schools and Alabama and Ohio State playing under the same rules has been a bad fit for years. That will change. Division one is going to change and the work on that has already begun, but the Constitution needed changing first. A restructured Division One could mean more autonomy for FBS conferences. But few people within college sports think major college football should leave the NCAA, basically create a new version of the NCAA. It's just not worth it. Here's the possible splashy headline or two that could come out of D1 restructuring. Expansion of of the NCAA men's basketball tournament. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but within the 350 Division I schools, there is just too much disparity for them to all operate under the same rules. I do think there is a desire to keep the tent large because of the David and Goliath aspect of the NCAA basketball tournament. Two problems. 
Can conferences that are operating under vastly different rules still compete against one another? Will smaller conferences still get the kind of access they have now to NCAA championships in general, especially the lucrative men's basketball tournament? Don't be surprised if the compromise is yes. Small conferences, you can keep your auto bids, but we, the bigger conferences, Want to create 16 or so at-large bids, new at-large bids that will mostly be gobbled up by us. It's going to be an interesting spring on this front. Second down, Illinois announced earlier this morning, we're taping on a Tuesday, that coach Brett Bielema had tested positive for COVID-19 and will miss this weekend's game against Iowa. That, along with Cal's game against USC last week being postponed because of COVID cases at Cal, gave me flashbacks to last season and they were not good. As we have gotten back to normal this year, it becomes even more wild to think about what an enormous, excuse my language, show last college football season actually was. Bielema is the second Power 5 coach I can recall missing a game this season. Lane Kiffin was not on the sideline for Ole Miss's opener against Louisville. Uh, I may be forgetting one or two other instances of a coach who missed the game because of COVID. In Bielema's case, he was vaccinated and had some symptoms that led to being tested. Hope Brett feels better soon. And glad that the disruptions this year, because of the pandemic, have been rare instead of the norm. Third down. Off the radar this week, I want to talk about Bailey Zapp, the Western Kentucky quarterback. You might remember in the offseason that WKU coach Tyson Helton, yes, Clay's brother, imported en masse an offense from Houston Baptist and FBS school. Zap came along with the offensive coordinator and his top receiver. It has worked out really well for the Hilltoppers, who are in first place in Conference USA East and play FAU this weekend. Most likely, the Marshall game to end the season will determine the division champ and which team plays for the conference title against UTSA. Getting back to Zap, he leads the country in yards passing at 4,170 And if he can hit his average over the next two games, which won't be easy against two pretty decent defenses, he will reach 5,000 yards passing in 12 games. That doesn't happen much. In the last 10 years, only Anthony Gordon, playing for Washington State and Mike Leach, and Patrick Mahomes, I think you guys know him, in his final season at Texas Tech, have reached 5,000 yards passing in 12 regular season games. Another thing to remind you about Mahomes, he did not play in a bowl game in his final season at Texas Tech because the Red Raiders did not win enough with him. What a strange, strange college career for one of the great players of all time. Anyway, for Zap, reaching 5,000 in 12 games, something to keep an eye on. That is the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, John Radcliffe, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, just about anywhere you like to get your pods. Please follow so you don't miss an episode. 
If you have questions that you'd like me or my guest to answer, email them to aptop25mailbag at gmail.com, aptop25mailbag, the digits 25 at gmail.com. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.